special edition of our show, Herstory on the Rocks, with Katie and Allie. Typically, on a Thursday evening, it would just be Allie and I with a couple of cocktails talking about famous women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about history normally, but this is kind of about some current, uh, current issues, <laughs> current issues about finances, <laughs> a little out of our depth. <laughs> we have a very special guest here with us today, Mary Ellen Iskandarian. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It sounds like so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) We're really happy to have you. Mary Ellen is president and CEO of Women's World Banking, which is a global nonprofit devoted to giving low-income women in developing countries world access to the financial tools that they need for security. And she is here to talk with us today about her book, There's Nothing Micro About a Billion Women, Making Finance Work women. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? I would love to. Um, Well, as you mentioned, I'm president and CEO of Women's World Banking. I can give you a little history because the organization is 43 years old uh, this year and was really, I find so remarkable. It was created by four women who met at the first UN conference on human rights in 1976 in Mexico City. And, you know, when you think about it in this country, a woman couldn't take out a loan or have a credit card in her own name without her husband's approval and signature. And yet here they were already thinking about building an organization to make sure that women around the world had access to all financial services. So it was... um, an American woman, an Indian woman, a woman from Ghana, and one from Kenya. So it was really a global organization right from the start. Mm, Perfect. Well, we can't wait to get into it, um, because this is definitely something we're not used to talking about. Um, Also, FYI, we both went to small, tiny, private Christian schools, so (laughs) I know nothing about finances. (laughs) (laughs) But before we get into the book, we have to get into this cocktail, so this is obvious, obviously called There's Nothing Micro About a Billion. Um, so it is gin, green apple liqueur, lemon juice, and then you top the whole thing off with, uh, or you garnish it with a slice of green apple. We figured, you know, got to make it green for money. Uh, and, <laughs> and it seems like it might be complicated, but like finances, you know, it's not as complicated as you might think. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh, I can't wait to partake with you. Mm-hmm. Mm. So we want to jump into talking about your book and let's start with giving a little bit of just definitions to our listeners. You talk a lot in the summary of the book about microfinance. Can you just kind of briefly say what that means? Sure. So microfinance was really a, a movement that started right around the time we were created, actually, in the, in the mid-70s. And it was kind of predicated on this idea that rather than just handing charity or handouts to very poor people, um, maybe trying to lend to them very small amounts of money so that they could support themselves and build livelihoods. And it was very much in this kind of experimental nature, but it turned out to be really successful as a way of, you know, getting people used to the discipline of repaying, finding out that people actually really wanted to save in addition to borrow. And it made a huge difference in the lives of women. And you started to see real differences in the way women dealt with money and men dealt with money. Repayment rates for women were very, very high. 
But I think where the book sort of, you know, takes that definition of microfinance and then departs a bit from it is really to say, you know, if the only thing your bank was giving you was a loan, that would not cover all of your needs. You do need a safe place to save. You need insurance to make sure that all that you've built up, all that you've gained, you know, doesn't get washed away in a flood or you're not able to, to earn if you or you're, you know, the, the breadwinner in your family becomes sick. You need a place to, a way to make payments and to do that affordably. And around the, the world, so many people rely on remittances from family members who are in other countries that it, it really started to, the movement started to really expand to something we call, and I talk a lot about in the book, financial inclusion. And so the kind of pun in the title is to really say there are billion women around the world who still have no access to financial services. That's an enormous market. It shouldn't be relegated to something that's just, oh, microfinance or just loans, but recognized as valuable customers that could be served and served profitably. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like on a macro scale. Bingo. Bingo. And it's so interesting because you give this kind of example in the beginning of this book of this woman and her husband and her just are not making enough money and she wants to start a hardware store, but she's too small for, you know, the big banks, like no one will take a a chance on her. And she finds this kind of um, solution in the microfinancing and it, it totally changes her life. So what exactly, how did she get to the micro, how did she get to that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you can explain it to our listeners because I think hearing about like a real person who accessed this would be really helpful in understanding this this concept. Well, and thank you so much for for bringing up that story because that mm-hmm. woman Joyce Wafuko is very meaningful to me in my life because mm-hmm. the first trip I took to Africa with Women's World Banking, I, I met her. And it was just such a remarkable thing to see this really prosperous woman and she'd created this business talking about, you know, what she was like seven years beforehand. And really, she says she just, it was more word of mouth than anything that some of the other, so I think I talk about, you know, the the fact that she belonged to the savings group, and it was other women in the village, they had taken loans from this organization, Kenya, organization, Kenya Women's Finance Trust, her loan, her first loan was $70. They taught her a little bookkeeping skills, some, some other business management skills. And, you know, the rest was history. She was able to build this business. And, you know, today is really quite prosperous in terms of, um, you know, growing the business in the, it was always very meaningful to me that when she talked about success, it wasn't in terms of revenues and profits. It was in terms of, all three of her kids going through school and now going to college, putting her sister through um, graduate school. And that is so consistent with women I've read, er, I've met everywhere in the world that the, what they can pass on to that next generation is really how they're defining their success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I see on social media, like pretty regularly, every couple of years, there'll be somebody who shares like, what's something that you can do that like your aunt or your grandmother couldn't do. And one of the popular ones is always like, I can have my own credit card or I can have my own bank account. 
where your book is a lot about the word you use is unbanked women. What can you tell us about what is life like, financial life like for women in developing countries? Oh, that's such a great question. Well, it's getting a lot better. And, and, one of the, and one of the biggest game changers has really been the cell phone and the ability to bank on your phone and specifically on a smartphone. Mm-hmm. Uh, we just have seen the fact that the cost of providing you know, a small loan or taking a small deposit has now gotten low enough that a large bank or insurance company or other kind of financial institution can afford even those very small transactions. And so um, the phone is absolutely critical. Now, of course, there's still a very big gender gap in, in phones. There's an 18% gender gap in between men's and women's ownership of smartphones. And that, that access to the internet is is key when it comes to sort of the old-fashioned flip phones not the gender gap is pretty much closed there but it's really that access to that smartphone so that you can use internet access that's so critical um and so that's really what's what's driving a, a lot of it um still a lot of transactions conducted in cash but as you can imagine cash is really not very safe women do not feel comfortable walking around a lot with a lot of cash um, it just, and as the system, more services, financial services, other business services, government services go online and you're stuck with cash or like a paper ID to establish who you are in order to get some kind of government payment, for example, you're just being left behind. And so the digital transformation is is everything and is really at the center of what we're seeing, particularly in the developing world. Yeah. I'd also love to ask about the difference between what women and men do with their money, because a really interesting part of the book was, I think you talked about women in China, how when women in China are earning their own money, the female members of the family, like the daughters, benefit way more because they're investing more money into their family and specifically their daughters. So is that something you see other places as well in different ways? Like how are women across the world and specifically in China using the money that they're gaining? Yeah, no, I'm so glad you asked that because it was, you know, when I came to Women's World Banking, I actually didn't have, I had a lot of development background, but I didn't have a lot of women's economic empowerment background. And it didn't take me long to see that there was a very common thread that when women have access to, to resources and the tools to control them and can make decisions about money coming into the house, they spend it on really three or four things everywhere in the world. It's their kids' education, it's housing, improving their, their housing, it's healthcare, and it's nutrition. Mm-hmm. And those are you know, those are a couple of things. Those are sort of intergenerational changes. They're things that make the next generation to the point that you were, you were making, Ali, they, they make the next generation stronger, but they're also things that benefit more people in the household. There's been some terrific research done about, you know, if, you, if there is going to be a, a, a tax credit or a, a welfare payment directed towards a member of the household, making it directly to the woman as opposed to the quote-unquote head of household or the highest earner, 
will have a much more widespread impact on everybody living in that household. Mm-hmm. And that kind of leads to really what I was thinking of next is how you really talk about how women being involved in finances helps the greater good. Like it's beneficial to everybody in the long run. Are there certain ways, like you talked about just women having access to capital, you know, increases their entire community. No, absolutely. We just see some really sharp differences, as I say, with the way that, that women, um, you know, women spend money when it's, when it's under their control. The other thing that I just find so fascinating is, um, and, you know, I talk about this in the book, the changes that a woman goes through during her life as she gains more financial, financial control. And I think, you know, there are things like you have greater household decision-making power and bargaining power. There's been some fascinating research that women are more likely to vote when they have control over finances. They're more likely actually to run for office. There's one thing that that is still there's a bit of a question mark around, and this is something that I really encourage re- any researchers in your audience to think about, is whether women are are more vulnerable or less vulnerable to gender-based violence when they have more money. There's unfortunately some some fairly decent research on both um, on both sides of that question. Um, there does appear to be a slight edge again with the digital. If you know the money, the money isn't in cash; it's just sort of on your SIM card. Um, it's a lot easier to control, you know, who who could get gain access to it if there were a you know an abusive relationship. We then we see some really powerful things about women's own self esteem, the way they think about themselves and the world, and the, and sort of planning for the future as opposed to staying, um, you know, really just living hand-to-mouth, day-to-day. So the, the impact of finance in women's lives is, is really goes far beyond just whether they have more money coming into the house or not. It really can, it can transform the way they live in their homes and in their communities. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, this organization has been around for a while, so it's seen a lot changing in the world, but I don't know if anything quite as much as the last two years. Um, <laughs> How has the pandemic affected what you're doing in women's finances and their access to money? No, I'm I'm probably one of the few people who's kind of excited about a bit of a silver lining that we've had these mm. last two years. And it it gets back to that that smartphone yeah. uh, ownership I was talking about before, because you know, you all remember back in March of 2020, like everything went online really fast. And so a lot of places that might have had sort of cultural norms or restrictive gender norms, like, ooh, a woman can't own a phone in her own name, that had to change. If you, you know, if you were a village bank that, you know, relied on a, you know, very nice weekly meeting under a bamboo tree that everybody shared stories and paid their their microloans, you, that wasn't happening. No, yeah. Nobody was getting together. No one was coming to collect the payments. You had to have that, that digital channel. And so we saw, you know, in India, story I always tell in India, the first round of COVID relief payments were paid only to women and only into digital accounts. Huh. Hmm. You saw in a matter of weeks, 
25 million new accounts opened primarily by women so that wow. they could take that payment. Huh. Not like they're given those phones back, you know, right. they are now included. They now have access. And I think the really exciting part for women's world banking and other organizations in our, in our space are how do we make sure we keep them? How do we design products that they need? We make sure that they feel comfortable and confident in navigating that phone and understanding how finance works. I mean, you were, you were saying, you know, you have questions, it's complex. It shouldn't be. We should be able to co- communicate clearly and simply because these concepts are, are so vital for women to understand. And the crisis kind of had us leapfrog. Um, in terms of women's access, which is very exciting. Mm. In in terms of researching and working to write the book, I am I correct in assuming that throughout history, women have kind of been the financiers of the family, even if they weren't bringing in the money, they were kind of controlling the money and the assets. How much did you have to look into that to see, and your organization in general, look into that to see how women are moving into the future? No, that it's that's such a great point because women control and literally control, make the purchasing decision for, I don't know, something like 87% of all household purchases. They are the de- decision maker on what the family's financial decisions are in the vast majority of cases, leaving aside how many woman-headed households, single heads of household there now there are now, you know, everywhere in the world. And so it just it it makes really no commercial sense to be pitching a product to somebody other than the one who's actually going to be deciding <laughs> whether to buy it or not. I, I was actually on a call-in radio show this morning with two guys and they were saying, Yeah, I read somewhere that women actually buy more beer, but men drink more. Yeah. <laughs> so why don't we actually pitch more beer commercials to women? And so I kind of left that unanswered, but he, he yeah. got the point. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely true around oh. here. We drink more beer around here. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny that you say that because that was a plot point on Mad Men mm-hmm. was they, they pitched something to Don Draper's wife because he was like, yeah, she's the one that goes to the store and buys it. So we should make the display appealing to her. Mm-hmm. And yep, it was, absolutely. Like, that's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's like the... Um, I, you know, I, the, in, in Saudi Arabia, you know, the women could pick the car that they were driven around in. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, um, so you cite a lot of studies and things like that in this book. Um, is there one that really stands out to you that you're like, everyone needs to know this fact about <laughs> your research? I know it's a hard question. Oh, that is hard. <laughs> Something maybe we haven't touched on yet that you're like, if someone needs to hear one. Yeah, I think what I, I, you know, I think the point of the book for me was really kind of to bring home three really important points. One is, yeah, we're talking micro, but as you hit the nail on the head, it's really a macro story. There is a macroeconomic impact of making sure these women have access to finance. There is a huge commercial opportunity and there is a transformative empowerment opportunity for women. But I think some of the numbers on that commercial opportunity were just mind boggling. There's some really pretty good sound estimates that if you looked at 
banks and insurance companies and wealth management companies, there is $700 billion every year in revenue that they are leaving on the table because men and women are not served at the same level. Fifty billion of that, fifty billion dollars in life insurance premiums alone, if women's lives were insured at the same rate that men's lives were. Huh. Uh, there, you know, two trillion dollars in bank deposits if women had access to bank accounts, savings accounts at the same rate that men do. And this is the part that I just don't understand. If you had a market of that many people that had that kind of impact, why wouldn't you look for a way to serve it? And I think sometimes it's, it's invisible. Sometimes the way we need to talk to women and, and sell financial products and services to women, they ask a lot more questions. They take longer to make decisions, but they are more loyal customers. Once, once you've got them, they're with you. Whereas men, quite frankly, are much more likely to shop around and, oh, the lending rate here is lower, so I'm going to bank here. And then next year, it's lower there. They'll leave. Women don't do that. Women will form a trust relationship and stay. And so there's, I think, if anything, it would be some of those commercial opportunities. I'd really love any, any bankers and business people that are listening to take home with them. Awesome. Are there any, um, like items or passion projects right now that your nonprofit is working on that you'd really love to share? Because I'm so interested in just the inner workings of what you do on a day-to-day basis. Oh, I always feel like that was a plant question. There is one that I'm very passionate about. Um, We became aware quite soon after the Ukraine crisis um, came about that, you know, first of all, it was an almost exclusively female refugee crisis. Men were staying behind to, to fight and women you know, were, were fleeing the co- country with their, with their kids, but they were often getting to your, uh, you know, other European countries and they were either unable to access money that they had in bank accounts. If they were carrying cash, um, they had, you know, ridiculous exchange rates for the Ukrainian currency in, into Europe. You had, um, you know, sort of the makings of a, you know, just a nightmarish sex trafficking situation at some of the borders. You have you know, this exclusively female population, can't get access to money, desperate to get out of the country, you know, all the recipes for a really awful situation. And so we had, um, have some relationships with some researchers in, in Ukraine, in Russia, in um, Moldova, and we're, we've launched a GoFundMe campaign, actually, to, to just speak to these women, understand what their needs are, what they're finding. Are they, are they still getting payments from Ukraine? Are they sending money back to Ukraine? What is, what is their access to finance? We found in the UK, for Ukrainian refugees that made it as far as, as England, they didn't have the proper documentation. Um, or their documentation wasn't even accepted by British banks. So they weren't even a- able to access their own money. So we're in the process of, we've, we are doing 800 um, surveys of 800 women, and then we're doing much more in-depth conversations with a smaller number of women. We had a very generous sort of kickoff 
um, contribution, but we, I'd love your, uh, your listeners to, to find us on GoFundMe, um, Women's World Banking and Ukrainian research on Ukrainian refugees, because this is, this is the way these women are going to be resilient is getting access to finance. Um, we have to start thinking about financial access as part of the humanitarian response. Um, so I, I love it if, uh, if, if we could uh, have some response there. That's my current real passion. Mm, absolutely. Amazing. It's so important because, you know, I think uh, a lot of people talked about like, oh, how smart it was that they put like strollers for these women, you know, at certain borders and stuff like that. And so I think we're getting better with looking at like those kinds of needs. But I think the financial ones just kind of slip through our fingers sometimes because we're like, oh, that'll be figured out later. And it's like, <laughs> they need it figured out now, like <laughs> right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been great. I'm enlightened. I, I'm a female business owner and I still feel like sometimes I'm like, I don't know anything about money. It's like, <laughs> I know a little bit. Like, I can. <laughs> And having conversations with people like you make me feel more confident, you know, and this book made me feel more confident. Oh, wow. You made my day. Thank you so, so much. And this cocktail, we, I don't think I have a green apple liqueur in my, in my cabinet, but everything else I've got. So I'll have to (laughs) to work on that. Yeah. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. And can you tell everybody where they can find this book, where they can find you and where they can follow your organization, Women's World Banking? Wonderful. Well, a lot of those things are the same. Um, (laughs) The name of the book is There's Nothing Micro About a Billion Women, Making Finance Work for Women. And if you go to the womensworldbanking.org, and that's all one word, no apostrophe before the the S, um, you can find out about our work. You can find out about me and link to um, a couple of pages. We've got uh, the book is on Amazon. It's on IndieBound. It's on Bookshop.org. So um, there's a, a numerous ways for you to uh, to gain access to it if you'd like to buy the book. Perfect. Yeah. And we do encourage everyone to go out and buy it because it's a very easy read for a financial book. So mm-hmm. don't be intimidated by it. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That means a lot because jargon doesn't help anybody. No. <laughs> and also if not request it at your local library. Yes. So people who don't have as much Ooh, money. I like that. That's a great idea. Yeah. Very, very good. Very good thinking. Yeah. Super. All Thank right. You so much. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye